wife Kim and uh, our two boys, Sawyer and PJ. In fact, they may be watching online this morning, and uh, if so, boys, if you're out there watching and Dad loves you very much, and I'll be home real soon. So, But I have a little bit of business to do here in the church this morning, amen? And we want to look into the Word of God. But I am thankful to be here today. It's a joy uh, to be back so soon. You know, uh, many of you may know, many of you may not know, we just moved over to Indiana, out to Lanesville, and uh, that's put us a little bit out of reach of being able to fellowship at uh, Fisherville on on an ongoing basis. So we're in the middle of transitioning churches to Harrison Hills Baptist Church, where Adam Horbach is currently the pastor, and so we're kind of in the midst of that transition. And uh, when Eric called this week and said, uh, brother, I'm sick, I've got COVID, would you be able to preach on Sunday? And uh, that was a call that was, that was easy to answer. And so I'm thankful to be here with you uh, this morning. Let's take our Bibles out this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The title of our message today is The Good News. Simply The Good News, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to cover uh, verses 1 through 10, uh, but let's read verses 1 through 4 this morning just as we set sail in God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 4, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this sacred time in your word. We thank you for the, the power of the scripture, the power of your word, the power to transform and change our lives. And Lord, I pray this morning that in these moments uh, we would see the salvation that you have so graciously extended to us, so gloriously extended to us. From your perspective, the right perspective, Father, that gives us joy, power, and ability to live out the Christian life for your honor and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perspective in our lives is a powerful thing. In many ways, our perspective on something can really define who we are. It can define what we think. It even can define, oftentimes, the actions that we take. You know, when you think about perspective, you wonder why Why is it that two people can look at a painting and draw completely different conclusions about what that painting represents? Why is it that two individuals can look at the same problem, per se, and come up with two radically different solutions to that problem? Or why is it that two individuals can look on the political scene and be on completely different ends of the spectrum as to what they think and believe and what should be done. Well, it's because we all have our own perspective, right? We all have our own perspective. Dictionary.com, which I trust wholeheartedly, defines perspective in the following way. It defines perspective as the state of one's own ideas. The state of of one's own ideas that are shaped by the facts known to someone. So our perspective is something that's formed within us. Our perspective is formed by 
facts, and we know facts are obtained by education and experience. So you may be saying, why this short lesson on perspective? Well, it's because our perspective of the good news, that is the gospel, and the salvation that it offers, will radically alter the power that, and glory that it possesses. So if you don't look at your salvation or at the salvation that's offered in the good news from the right perspective, it's going to be diminished in its power. It's going to be diminished in its glory. Unless we look at our salvation from the right perspective, and beloved, there is a right perspective from which we must see our salvation. As I said, its glory and power will never fully be seen. It will never fully be experienced. It will never fully be embraced to empower you in the Christian life. Dr. Steve Lawson, in his book, Foundations of Grace, he says this, in order to think rightly about salvation, it is critical to begin at the right perspective. The right perspective. So what does he mean? What is that right perspective? Well, to get it right, to see its glory, to understand its power, Listen, beloved, we must view the gospel and our salvation from God's perspective. We must view our salvation from God's perspective. And so how do we know what his perspective is? Well, we find that in the scriptures, do we not? And what is his perspective? Well, this is God's perspective of salvation. That the gospel and salvation are completely and totally his work and his work alone. Let me say that again. God's perspective on salvation is that the gospel and salvation that he provides are completely and totally his work and his work alone. No man receives, no man earns salvation by his own doing, by his own merit, by his own goodness, by his own good works. Rather, salvation comes, salvation is offered, salvation is received, and is possessed by God's work and his free gift alone. This must be our perspective of salvation offered in Christ. And if we gather this perspective, if we understand and look at salvation from God's perspective, oh, it's a wonderful perspective to see. It's a joyous, rich perspective, seeing our salvation from God's eyes, through God's heart, and through God's mind. For he has accomplished it all for us. You know, this perspective is rich and is deep and has implications. It's, it's like eating that pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving with that nice, sweet, and condensed milk in there. But if you view your salvation from any other way, it's like making pumpkin pie with, rather say, skim milk. It's not going to taste the same, is it? It's not going to be experienced in the same way. And this morning, the text that we are in, we are in a text that teaches us, that really screams to us, the unveiling and the glory of the good news of Christ. And it is a text that gives us God's perspective on salvation. And in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the Apostle Paul, he's reminding the Ephesian believers what God has done in their salvation. And so he is giving them his perspective on salvation through the inspiration of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And my goal today is to remind you of this very work as well to remind you of this very work of salvation that God has done in your life and to see it from his perspective. 
And my goal really is this. I, I do want you to see it from his perspective. I want you to understand the truth about your salvation. But ultimately, the goal would be this, to ensure you have the right perspective, that you may see and experience the full joy of your salvation. The full joy of your salvation. To realize this goal this morning, I want to offer you, uh, by way of reminder here, three saving acts performed by God in salvation. So that's going to frame up our outline this morning. Three saving acts performed by God in salvation. And why do we want to do this? Because it is the good news of the gospel. The first saving act is this. God rescues the sinner. Okay, that's the first saving act. God rescues the sinner. This is found in verses 4 and 5. Paul writes to the Ephesians, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. In this section, Paul speaks to the Ephesians as believers, as those who have come to faith in Christ. In verses 4 and 5, we see this language of resurrection that really needs to be understood. And what I would say is a rescue mission. God is rescuing us from something when he saves us and makes us alive. But the question is, what is God rescuing us from? This is a rescue mission of God on behalf of the sinner. Well, the rescue mission is found in verses 1 to 3. You know, in recent days, and we've seen these stories before, but in recent days, we've, you've probably seen the stories of flooding uh, down in Tennessee where they had some really horrific flooding, um, a lot of damage to homes, property, etc. And we know the reality of a flood. Towns can be destroyed. Bridges, roads can be destroyed. Water rushing and roaring through homes, destroying everything in its path. There's nothing that can withhold these types of floods. And, and the scenes are, are tragic and scary, and they can become terrifying. Cars swept away, homes swept away, people swept away, people clinging to branches of trees and car doors trying not to be swept away by these floods. People terrified and, and close to death. Beloved, this is a picture. This is a reality of the life of the sinner. This is the life of the sinner. This is the plight of every real, really every human being who is found in sin throughout his life is that he is in the flood of sin being carried off to eternal damnation and destruction. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Ephesians, as we know before salvation, this was their plight. We find the description of this, of this plight, of this flood the sinners find themselves in in verses 1 to 3. Paul reminds them of their plight. He reminds them that they were being carried off in the flood of sin and its destruction. They were cut off from God separate from him, drowning in the floodwaters of sin, headed to eternal damnation. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says to the Ephesians in verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul reminds them here that these floodwaters of sin mean that they were spiritually dead. They were separated from God. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They possessed a sin nature. All they knew was sin and to do sin. 
all of their inclinations were dominated by sin. In verse 2, we see this, and Paul says, Trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says not only were they spiritually dead, but they were under sin's total domination. Sin reigned them. Sin owned them. The inner man, the mind, the heart, the will was all dominated and controlled by sin. Not only the inner man, but everything around them. The world system that is evil and controlled by Satan himself. Sin worked in them. It was so all-consuming, Paul says they were literally sons of disobedience. But it gets worse in verse 3. This raging floodwaters of sin. He says, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Listen, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says not only were the Ephesians dead in sin, they were under sin's domination, they pursued sin. They actively pursued sin. But Paul now does something very unique, doesn't he? He he begins to do what? He turns from just the Ephesians, and now he turns to himself. And he turns to all men. He says, we too all were caught up into this condition. It includes Paul, it includes all men, it includes you and I. Before Christ, before salvation, this was our condition. This was our plight. We pursued sin. We lived in the indulged and indulged evil desires of the flesh, the desires of the, the heart and the mind. We actively pursued them. Paul here now describes this condition as children of wrath. This pursuit meant that we were hostile toward God. And his wrath for sin stood true and imminent on our lives. The Ephesians and Paul and you and I, were we were ultimately living corpses, caught up in this this flooding rage of sin. Our whole lives were being carried off into this flood of sin. What a stark picture. We, we indulged it. We sought it. We ran after it. We enjoyed it. That was our plight. In fact, we didn't even think that we were in need of rescue. We didn't even think there was anything wrong. That was the condition our hearts were in. I think back to my days before coming to Christ, before being saved by God, that describes my life completely. Pursuing sin, pursuing self, pursuing whatever sin wanted, whatever my heart desired. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that is what we pursued. And it was like raging waters carrying us to our destruction. That was our lives, just like the Ephesians, just like Paul, being carried off in a hopeless torrent of sin. It's a desperate situation. It's a hopeless situation. It's a hopeless, helpless, and desperate situation that can only be remedied by one thing, and that's divine intervention, by divine intervention. 
Who could rescue the Ephesians from this plight? Who would rescue Paul from his plight? Who would rescue you and I from this flood of sin? Did you rescue yourself? Could you rescue yourself? You and I were dead in the floodwaters of sin. We could do nothing to rescue ourselves. Listen, beloved, if we are to be saved, if we are to see the glory of this salvation, if we are to, listen, enjoy the God who saved us, as he is to be enjoyed, our perspective must start here. Of the hopeless and helpless situation that we found ourselves in. That is how we will begin to enjoy God and his salvation and the power that he brings in it. Now we come to verse 4, which we've already seen. I've given away the thunder a little bit. And we see who is going to rescue us, do we not? We see who's going to rescue us. Let's look at verse 4. Let's read it together. I don't know about you, my version says, but the sinner, being rich in good works, and because of his great love with which he loves others, made himself alive. Is that what verse 4 says? No. But aren't we so prone and tempted to think that? We are so prone and tempted to think that it was one of those things, our, our own goodness, our own merit, our own, our own works, our own love with which we love those around us, and somehow earning us our salvation. And in fact, as believers, sometimes we slip back into this, do we not? And we think that we have to do these things to keep our salvation and keep our standing before God where it should be, that we have some part in all of that. No, verse 4, what does it say? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 4 says, but God. It's God who rescues. It's God who makes alive. It's God who throws the life preserver to snatch us out of the floodwaters of sin. It is God who pulls the sinner out of these waters out of the sin that controlled and dominated his life, who, who resurrects and transforms his sin nature. God does it all. God has, does every part of it. First of all, Paul here tells us why he rescues. Verse 4, he says, being rich in mercy. That's good news, isn't it? Being rich in mercy God throws us the life preserver because he's rich in mercy. This mercy in salvation is the, the manifestation of divine compassion and kindness to the sinner. I, I love the, the parable in Matthew 18 of, of the, the two slaves who owe two different debts and the, the king forgave the debt of the 10,000 talents. And it says, why does the king do that? Because he felt compassion for the slave, right? He felt compassion. A debt he could never pay, a debt he could never, ever get out from under. 
But the king forgives it. Why? Because he felt compassion for the slave. That's the compassion he extends to us in salvation. A debt we can never pay, a debt we can never overcome, a a situation we can never get ourselves out of, God moves on the basis of his divine compassion. This, This compassion, this mercy here, love seeking the greatest good of another, that comes in the next phrase. Look at verse four again, being rich in mercy and also because of his great love with which he loves us. I love that phrase there, great love. It's megos in the Greek, megos love. Because of God's megos love, he rescues us. His megos love. Love seeking the greatest good of another, and in this case, of his enemies. Listen, back in verse 3, we were called what? Children of wrath. Children of wrath. But because of his great love, He reaches down to rescue us. And this love where God extends the greatest good to his enemies, the greatest good to someone undeserving, the greatest good at the highest cost, is that not demonstrated through the love of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up a terrible, awful death on our behalf to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins? In verse 4, we see Paul here say, why he rescues, because of his mercy, because of his love. Here we see this phrase in, in verse 4 also where Paul introduces us this whole concept of you were being, we are being saved by grace. By grace, he says, you have been saved. We're going to come back to that phrase in a minute. In verse 4 we see why he rescues, but now in verse 5, we see the how. How does he rescue us from sin? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, Paul here describes, he wants to make sure again that we understand the state we were in, our utter inability. He emphasizes the sinner's condition, dead in sin, can do nothing to overcome it, can do nothing to make himself alive. No merit will save. No amount of good works will save. Paul wants us to be sure we understand the reality of what God has done for us. And even though we were dead in sin and our transgressions, what does Paul say? God made us alive. He made you and I alive. He rescued us from our sinful condition. He made us alive together with Christ. This this ultimately is the climax of the section. God took what was dead and made it alive. That's the rescue rescuing you from your sinful condition. He took what was dead in sin and made it alive. This, this made alive phrase here is the, carries the idea of resurrection from the dead. And in our case, it is resurrected from being spiritually dead to having new spiritual life. And it also encompasses this idea of being complete and finished. When God raised you in Christ, it was done, it was complete, it was finished. He imparted to you new spiritual life. That is the the resurrection that we experience in the rescue of God and our salvation. He imparts new spiritual life into us, made us alive. This new spiritual life, we understand it as being born again. We understand it as being the regenerating work of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But this new spiritual life comes with implications. It comes with something we experience and feel and know. This new spiritual life that where God made us alive together with Christ. First of all, we know that the power of sin is broken. The power of sin is broken. At that moment, when we are made alive in Christ, the power of sin over our lives is broken. The heart, the mind, the inner man now is being flooded with, the, with new desires and new inclinations and new thoughts. So the chains and bonds of sin are broken and we are no longer fastened to it. We also know when, when we are raised and made alive together with Christ, the penalty of sin is removed. The penalty of sin is removed. The Spirit applies the atoning blood of Christ, cleansing one from the penalty and the guilt of sin. And then this new spiritual life, being made alive with Christ, God also gives us the provision of the Spirit. The Spirit now takes up residence in our hearts, takes up residence in the inner man, enabling us to live for God and to live out the salvation and to live and gain more and more Christ-likeness in our lives. And so we see God rescuing us from sin by making us alive in Christ. The power of sin is broken, the penalty of sin is removed, and the provision of the Spirit comes into our hearts and into our lives. This is all the work of God done on behalf of the sinner. This is the good news. I want you to see one other thing. I love the connection here in, in chapter 2 to chapter 1. How does God do all this? Well, he does it through divine power. What kind of divine power? The same power through which he physically raised Jesus from the dead. Look back over at verse chapter 1 just for a second. Pick it up in verse 18. Paul says there, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing, look, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So God has extended this great power toward us who believe. What kind of power is he talking about? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, look, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Turn back to chapter 2. So this very same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and seat him in the heavenly places is the very same power he used to raise you from this being spiritually dead and giving you new spiritual, spiritual life. It is the very resurrecting power of God. Many theologians call this the divine enablement and divine power of God. It's all by God. It's all his work. It's all his power. He rescues the sinner. And we receive this salvation. We receive it, but we've already said this. On, on what basis do we receive it? Is, it? is it because, well, I'm a pretty good guy? You know, guy I work with says, you know, Brent, he's a pretty decent guy. Surely he's going to heaven, Right? Like he takes care of his family and mows his neighbor's lawn occasionally. And I don't ever hear him swear. 
Is that, is that how we receive it? On the basis of our goodness or our merit somehow? What does Paul say in these verses? Look back at verse 5, and I want to back up to that phrase. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. This is the basis that we receive this salvation, this new life in Christ, being rescued from sin. We receive it all by grace. Grace here, carrying the idea of being unconditional and unmerited. We didn't merit it in any way. There was no conditions to receive it. It's all by grace. And that grace is powerful. And it cannot be resisted by the sinner when it comes into his life to save him and to cause him to be born again. We receive it by grace. He says, by grace, what? You have been saved. You have been saved. I love that phrase, you have been saved. The, the word saved here, it carries this idea of being rescued from danger. Rescued from danger. Being snatched from peril. Something coming in and snatching you out of harm's way. I remember years ago, we had friends in Florida. They had just gotten a pool, and their, their girls were young, and they, they couldn't swim that well yet. At least the younger one couldn't swim that well yet. I think she was like two, and she was just learning how to swim. And We had come over to their place, and we were uh, swimming and all that, and we had finished up, and I think we were cleaning some things up, and the next thing we know, we hear this splash, right? And we were all out there, so it wasn't like we were far away. Uh, but we hear this splash into the water, and, and she's bobbing. I mean, she can't swim. And I remember the mom just reaching down and grabbing her by the head of the hair and pulling her out of the pool. That's literally what she did and set her on the, on the sidewalk. And we laughed, but it's such a stark reality, isn't it? She snatched her out of peril, literally by the head of her hair. Hair of her head, I mean. It was such a stark scene. But that's almost what God did for us. We were like just in sin. And he just grabs us and yanks us out of it, snatches us out of harm's way through the redeeming work of Christ. And it's solely on the basis of his grace, his unconditional merit, unmerited favor to us that he reached down and pulled us out, snatched us out of the floodwaters of sin that contaminated and was destroying our lives and heading us to eternal destruction. This idea, as we know, is further developed down in verses 8 and 9. Skip down there for a second. It's further developed down in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Paul says here, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here again we see Paul return to this phrase, For by grace... You have been saved. You have been snatched out of harm's way, out of this peril. Paul says it is all by grace. And by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The question always comes up here in verse 8. Well, what is the gift of God? Well, it's, a, it's a, the grace-faith combo. It's a, it's a grace-faith gift. God extends the gift of grace to us, and that grace comes with the ability to have faith, the ability to exercise faith in Jesus. That, that faith, as we know from the Scriptures, also includes the idea of repentance, that we turn from our sin and we turn towards Christ, but all of that is the gift of God. Do we exercise it? Yes. 
But it is all a gift of God. It is not merited upon our own. It is enabled by God in the process of us being raised together with Christ. And so this idea of faith and repenting and believing, it is all a grace gift of God and is extended to us as believers. And why is that? So no man may boast as if the the case wasn't already sealed to this point. In these verses, Paul wants to make sure we understand that it's all by grace, it's all a gift, so no one may boast. Why? Because that way God gets all the glory for our salvation. He gets all the glory. The only boasting for salvation and his rescue of sinners belongs to God and God alone. To God and God alone. Otherwise, His glory in it will be diminished. It will be lessened in some way. This must be our perspective, beloved, of our salvation. And God's work of salvation in our lives. It's all about him. It's all about his grace. If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, maybe you've heard the gospel, heard the facts of the gospel. I know that's the condition I was in for so many years, kind of understood the gospel, but never had been saved. If you're here this morning and maybe hearing this for the very first time, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can be snatched out of that flood. Today is the day you can be saved for all eternity in Christ. So we implore you this morning. We encourage you. We offer the gift of salvation to you. God is holy. As we've seen, man is sinful. But God made a way for us through, his Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We call you this morning to place faith in him, to repent of your sins, place faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And in that process and in that doing, doing that, you will know that God is working on your behalf. So we call you to do that. We call you to faith. We call you to salvation. We call you to be saved out of the floodwaters of sin. We want you to know what Christ has to, to offer you in this salvation. So glorious, so joyful. If we can help you with that, if we can talk to you about that today, please let us know. We implore you to trust in Christ. God's perspective of salvation must be our perspective of salvation. It must be our perspective in order to, to see all of its glory, to see all of the glory of God in it, to enjoy its full magnitude and to be empowered through it in our lives. So the first saving act this morning is that God rescues sinners. God rescues sinners. The second saving act is this, and this is going to pick it up in verse 7. The second saving act is this, God adorns the believer with kingdom privileges. God adorns the believer with kingdom privileges. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, Paul says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And we see that very reality playing out here in verses 7 and 8 as a part of God's work on our behalf in salvation. In verse 6, we find the final two verbs that begin in verse 5. Two additional realities of salvation. Look at verse 6. He says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. It is an adornment of privilege 
that we are seated with Christ by God in the heavenly places in our salvation. God now connects us as believers. He connects that new spiritual life, that new resurrection life with kingdom realities, with the the privileges that come with this new position that we have in Christ. Just as Christ was raised from the dead and was seated with God in the heavenly places, so we too as believers being raised from the spiritual dead, we are in the same way, seated with Christ, being united to him by faith in the heavenly places in Christ. I believe we will experience this actual being seated with Christ in a couple of different ways. I think this will be literal in the future when we are in heaven in the heavenly places. We will have a place, we will have a seat obviously in God's kingdom, a privilege of being Christ's children. But even now I think we we experience in the reality of being given a seat with Christ we participate ultimately in this, this coronation and this exaltation of Christ as, as a conqueror in our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. We participate that now in the fact that we are also conquerors. We have also overcome sin and death in our salvation provided to us by God. Sin no longer reigns over us. Death no longer reigns over us. Just as Christ overcomes sin and death on the cross, now we too, being united to Christ, reign with him and rule with him as conquerors over sin and death. Romans 8, 37, Paul says that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And being seated with him in the spiritual reality, we too now are more than conquerors in this way. And Paul, as we know in chapter 1, verse 3, we also participate as believers in all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so we are more than conquerors. We have been given kingdom privileges and our salvation provided to us by God. Why would he do this? Look at verse 7. Why would he do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why would God do all of this? Why would he make this such a display in our salvation? Why would he give us these kingdom privileges to display the riches of his grace, to put on display for all eternity? The riches found in our salvation, the salvation that he has given us by grace, now into the ages to come and all eternity, he will be constantly putting on display the riches of his grace in saving you. And you will be there with him and with our Lord Jesus Christ forever, and he will be constantly putting on the display of his grace forever and ever. He will display and adorn all of his very own that he, has bought, that he has bought through the precious blood of Christ. And these riches are immeasurable, Paul says here in verse 7. They are surpassing riches of his grace, surpassing immeasurable riches that we can never even measure, never even quantify into all eternity. It's so important for us to understand our salvation from God's perspective. If not, we will miss the reality of his rich grace being displayed upon us in our salvation. 
Our third and final saving act is this. Our third and final saving act of God is this. God prepares believers for his work. God prepares believers for his work. Once again, this is a work of God. Once again, this is his doing. Once again, this is him doing something on our behalf. Look at verse 10. Paul says here, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepares believers for his work. God's saving work is not only to display his glory, but to prepare a people for good works, for the works that he has for them to do. Paul says here in verse 10, first of all, we are his workmanship. Believers in the process of salvation are, in a sense, recreated by God. They are now being in the process of being recreated into a a new masterpiece. In salvation, God creates the believer now in Christ Jesus, he says. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be now created in Christ Jesus? Well, we are now recreated in the image of Christ. We are recreated as believers in salvation, in the process of salvation, in the image of Christ. The, The corruption of sin inherited from Adam is reversed And the new life we found in Christ is being given to us by God, recreating us now in His image. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so in salvation, God is on this mission to recreate us, to break away the image marred and stained by sin from Adam, and now to recreate us into the image of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's doing that for a specific purpose. He has a specific purpose in that new creation. He says there in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice here these good works have been prepared beforehand in eternity past. He has prepared us for these good works that we would walk in them, he says. God has work for every believer. He has work for every one of us to do. Now listen, this is a key point. Not to maintain your salvation. Not, certainly not to earn it. We've covered that. Not to maintain your salvation. You're not trying to maintain some kind of goodness through these works. The goodness you have comes from Christ and Christ alone. But he has these good works for us to do, to grow and mature the body of Christ. He's going to talk about that later in Ephesians chapter 4, to grow and mature the body of Christ. All the works that he has prepared for us as believers, all the works, all the spiritual gifts he gives to us through the Spirit for the working and building up of the body of Christ, these are the good works God has prepared for us, recreating us specifically for these works. In Ephesians 4 verse 16, uses this imagery of a body growing and maturing. But I love it in verse 12 and 13 there in chapter, chapter 4 where he says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the key word, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain ultimately to the fullness of the image of Christ, which is our ultimate destination and goal. In our salvation and your salvation, God has set you on a new course, a new mission in these good works to build up the body of Christ. 
That is the work he has done for us in salvation. This morning, our purpose has been to just remind ourselves of the right perspective of salvation. It's God's perspective of salvation. Salvation is his work and his work alone. And I've given you three saving acts here from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. God rescues the sinner. God adorns the believers with kingdom privileges. And God prepares believers for his work. And the ultimate goal is that you may experience and know and love and embrace the joy of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. Let me give you a couple of final thoughts for application. First of all is this. Maybe you find yourself in these days struggling to find joy, even as a believer, struggling to find joy. I encourage you to go back and reorient yourself in your salvation, in what God has done for you in it. Maybe you've just gotten sidetracked by life, right? Worldly things, difficulties going on. Maybe these mega world events that are going on, you know, have sidetracked you from joy. But you can bring yourself back to center back to the joy you have in your salvation by reorienting yourself on what God has done for you. Second of all, you know, there's oftentimes we as believers, we get weighed down and consumed with guilt. It's a real thing. We can really just get consumed with guilt over sin. Sin, maybe it's past sin, maybe it's pre-salvation sin, maybe it's patterns of sin in the past that have gone away, maybe it's even sinful patterns now patterns now and you're you're weighed down in that well, it's time to go back and reorient yourself to the gospel and to the salvation god has provided for you he has cleansed and removed that guilt and the stain of guilt in the work of christ and the salvation he's provided so we have to go back and satan will love nothing more than to hold you down and weigh you down with the guilt of sin that's been removed in, through christ and salvation so you have to go back and reorient yourself to the right perspective of salvation and change that perspective maybe this morning you find yourself in a pattern of sin you just can't get out of it sometimes we just need to go back and see what god has done for us and why he's done it for us to break the chains and the bonds and the the pattern of sin that you may be caught up even now as a believer to go back and get his perspective on your salvation and the mission he has for you I hope this morning that taking this time by way of reminder of what God has done for us in salvation, of seeing it from his perspective, will glorify him, will encourage you, will bring new joy, new momentum in your salvation as you live and work for him. Let's take a moment, bow our heads and hearts in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful. We're so thankful for this salvation, so great a salvation For by grace we have been saved, not through works, lest any man should boast. And Father, this salvation that will be richly enjoyed, the display of your glorious grace and the immeasurable riches of that grace will be known and seen throughout all eternity. Oh Lord, help us see it now. Help us feel it now. Help us embrace it now, the reality of what you have done for us. You've rescued us. You've given us new life. 
You've cleansed us from sin. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you have done it all. And may we rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.